Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield, and we'll see them up with what you're doing down here, you shiny man. Hello there, you. Join us for Monday's Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast after the worst Liverpool-Manchester United game of all time. So oh, say the on. well, so say the Twitter Addy, Ken and Murph, the keyboard warriors out there. <laughs> yeah. I love those phrases. I don't know. These people almost be about twelve. Um, what the Twitter Addy? Uh, the people who are saying that. I'm sure that doesn't include all your Twitter Addy. Um, I've seen a lot of these games. Owen. I'm just sorry. I'm just actually. Lean back in my rocking chair here. <laughs> I've seen a lot of these games and they're always really bad. It's much easier to name the good ones than the bad ones. What do you mean it's much easier to name the good ones? There are so few of them that they're easy to remember. Three all, Anfield. That's the one. That's Bruce Grobbler. Uh, <laughs> Dennis Irwin. Of course. Uh, there was a 3 2 at Anfield yeah. uh, in which Jamie Carragher scored two own goals, which was, which was also a. Uh, a back and forth affair, mm. um, but beyond that, there hasn't really been. I mean, can you think of any other good games? I mean, there have been a couple of games in which one side has has won. What time about Norman Whiteside coming off the bench in some milk cup game back in the day, hammered into Steve McMahon, scored a couple of goals. Was that a three all as well? Yeah, I think so at Anfield. I mean, you're talking about nearly thirty years ago, aren't you? Sure. So, but is this the worst? Is this not okay? There've been plenty of bad ones, but is this not the worst? name one that's wor- been worse in the game? It, so. might be, it, might, it might have been the least relevant to the league that there's been in a long time. Because usually there's one of the teams is riding high, and the other team has uh, nothing but local pride uh, to play for. But that's usually enough. This was sixth versus ninth. Yeah. So I mean, I think I think there. Would, I mean, that's not entirely new either, but. There have certainly been a lot less of those types of games in the last Yeah, I said, haven't heard either of you suggest the worst game. There was a game, well, there's the cup final in 96 was, was probably a worse game. That was quite, yeah. yeah it was well, horrendous. Yeah, it wasn't a great game. Terrible match. Uh, there was a match in 2004, I think, where uh, the, I think Liverpool won 1-0 at Old Trafford, but it's difficult to remember any of the details because it was such a low-profile game at the time. Mm-hmm. That they put it on at three o'clock on Saturday, mm-hmm. so no one wants to watch this nonsense. <laughs> the graveyard shift <laughs> in modern football. Yeah, was it two thousand four? I think it was. I mean, Arsenal had won the league, or Chelsea were winning the league, and Manchester United and Liverpool was a kind of an irrelevant uh, sort of sideshow. There were a few games where one team has performed well and thrashed the other team, but in terms of of one where both teams have played well and scored goals and you know put on a show, the likes of which you might have seen. The likes of which, for instance, Chelsea and Everton did over the weekend. I mean, you know, there's, there's a when when you get a three all, there's always good and bad aspects to both sides' performances. But you know, it's a good game to watch. Manchester United against Newcastle, Liverpool against Arsenal, just in recent times. But every so often, you're going to get a bad game. That's the way football is, and that's what yesterday was. I'll tell you one person who was able to overlook the lack of quality and just soak in the atmosphere. Who was that? Phil Jones. What a celebration by Phil mm. Jones in the UAE end. And also, then we saw the chants afterwards that have gone viral. What were they? <laughs> I'm putting out all my modern uh, 
social media phrases, Murph. Um, <laughs> Old still living downstairs with his mother's basement, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, his yeah. Uh, familiarity with the internet. Jonesy won, Gerard Neal. All the fans around him, Jonesy won, Gerard Neal, after he scored against Liverpool. Is that in terms happened. of league titles? No, Phil Jones scored a goal against Liverpool in a game, didn't he, a few years ago? I'm pretty sure that's what it's based on. And at first he's just standing there, by the end of the clip... Did he it's, score a goal against... It's, I'll, I'll double-check the origins of the chant. But by the end of it, Jonesy is up chanting, Jonesy won, Gerard Neal. Oh, really? Just hope he didn't pull his groin with all of that exuberant over-celebrating Well, that is the true, goal. these players are all injured, maybe they shouldn't be... I don't remember Phil nuts. Jones scoring a goal against Liverpool. I think that's probably a reference to league title medals. Um, ah, you're right. Jones yeah, having joined right. in yeah, 2011. Yeah. But it's 2016 now. One isn't actually that good a total, <laughs> really. Considering he probably would have been expecting continuing, two to three. Yeah, continuing the internet theme. You know, there's a reason why they compare Ryan Giggs yeah. and Stephen Gerrard's career totals. Not Phil Jones and Stephen Gerrard. You'd have to think of a different song to, to put it to because 13 doesn't fit into the the rhythm of the chant that Stephen Gerrard would assume would have assumed by now he'd be at one though after one season in LA didn't work out in terms of a league title there did it not? no they didn't win the league of this course year. yeah <laughs> It's not easy to win the league, you know? Even, well, Robbie Keane has found it quite easy up until I now I know, but you see people just think oh, Robbie Keane's won the league again it must be easy not easy on not that easy easier you have to well, easy, easier Easier for sure, for sure. But you know, you gotta you gotta win a lot of games. You gotta win knockout games as well. You know, so it's it's not uh, anyone's divine right. Least of all, Stephen Gerrard. There's a lot of sport out there, but who's going to report on it? So I guess Owen, we'll actually start not with that match at Anfield, but with the uh, comparably uh, low quality match between Stoke and Arsenal. Arsenal, who have now drawn their last two games, which is not not great form, I suppose, considering they you know want to be winning the title and all that kind of stuff. On the other hand, they have managed to get trips to Anfield and the Britannia Stadium out of the way without losing, which isn't too bad. Um, this game was very bad, and the main memorable thing about it, uh, if that 96 uh, FA Cup final will be remembered for the suits that one of the teams wore. Uh, the Stoke Arsenal game will be remembered for the chance of the Stoke fans about Aaron Ramsey. Uh, the the chance where Aaron Ramsey he walks with a limp, which he doesn't actually. He's he's got a very fine gait, but obviously this is a reference to six years ago when uh, when Ryan Shawcross, uh, the rock of the Stoke City defence, broke the leg of Aaron Ramsey with a uh, roof rough challenge uh, in midfield and uh, put Ramsey out of the game for nearly a year uh, as his uh, shin bone was splintered into uh, three, at least three separate parts. Pretty ugly injury. But why would the Stoke fans do this? Yeah, um, it's, it's sort of interesting. It's been going on for a while. And then he realized actually um, just over this weekend that, th- that there's actually a little, uh, a kind of a, a denial industry going on Surrounding the, a bit like the, you know, uh, jet fuel can't melt steel beams type of um, thing that goes on with regard to another controversial event in history. Um, that About whether Shawcross in fact broke Aaron Ramsey's leg at all. Uh, There's like a truther movement. There in, is. Uh, there, is a, there is a Shawcross-Ramsey truther movement. Which uses photographs of the incident to show that actually Ramsey's leg broke when he planted it in the ground and Shawcross was just a luckless uh, person who was on the scene who happened to kick through an already broken leg, making it look much worse than it was. Simply the wrong man in the wrong place at the wrong time. And this is proven uh, with reference to a photograph which shows... Ramsey, uh, kind of, imagine he's diving into a swimming pool. He's in that sort of position physically. Only he's got one leg sort of planted on the ground. I say sort of planted because it's not really planted. It's kind of the stump of his shin that's planted and the remaining part of his shin and his ankle is kind of flopping to the side. You see? Yeah. Um, But Shawcross's leg isn't sort of making contact with Ramsey's leg. Shawcross's leg is actually back, a little bit back. So what they're saying is that this is before the contact 
and Shawcross is about to make it. And you can see here that the leg is clearly already broken. Um, Do you buy that argument? No. It's completely stupid. Uh, I mean, it's one of the most idiotic things I've ever seen. Uh, I mean, obviously what's happened is Shawcross's leg having bounced back from the force of the impact with with Ramsey's. I mean, if you actually watch the incident, you can see quite clearly that the leg breaks at exactly the point where Shawcross kicks through the leg and, come, and kind of comes through it. And the, mem the momentum of Ramsey and the momentum of Shawcross are traveling in such a way that everything about it makes sense. Uh, I don't really think that this truth or movement should have gotten off the ground. But it does kind of show the lengths to which people are prepared to go to, I don't know what exactly, make themselves feel better about what happened. Uh, and I think that's why they actually do this. So Ramsey, this this whole sort of mythology then grew up around it. Oh, sure, you know, Shawcross texted Ramsey, but Ramsey didn't answer. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe, maybe Ramsey, if he was being 100% magnanimous, if, if Ramsey was, you know, Jesus Christ or, you know, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, maybe he should have sent back a, a message to Shawcross saying, okay, mate, no hard feelings, thumbs up. I forgive you. Uh, punching fist sign, you know, mm. uh, bicep uh, emoji. <laughs> uh, maybe that's what he should have done. But I could understand him not really wanting to do that. And I think that's fine. But then you get this situation where Ramsey has to play. It's Ramsey rehabilitates himself, comes back to basically his old fitness, is playing really well, and then is back yeah, playing for Arsenal at Stoke. Now, Stoke don't like Arsenal. There was a, there was a kind of a, a you know, bad relationship between the teams, the uh, blossomed during the Tony Pulis years. Um, Wenger made some, I mean, the snobbiest comment he's probably ever made about mm -hmm. an opposing team, comparing them to a rugby team. So they, they, I remember being at one of those Stoke Arsenal games where Stoke beat them 3-1 and everyone was singing uh, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot uh, to Arsene Wenger. And, and if you remember also, Wenger did that thing. Um, there was a moment in one of the games where Wenger protested against the decision that was made and kind of, you know, uh, kind of vociferously protested with a lot of gestures. And the Stoke fans behind him, you could see them all behind them, started to imitate this sort of electrical dance that Wenger was doing, like shaking their uh, limbs and sort of sticking out their tongues and waggling their heads about, you know, and, and, and mocking him like in this horrible way. Um, but now they sing this about Ramsey. And it's like, why, why would you do it? It's, it's like you, all he did was have his leg broken by one of your players. And I think it's because... When you do something bad to someone, you actually want to keep doing bad things to them. It's like, uh, it makes you feel better. What? Yeah. That's the way it is. You better have some... Uh, I, I'm going to say that you've uh, some sort of scientific basis Sounds for this. Like rather than just, this is me, Ken Early. This is how I feel about this. No, it's true. It's, it's, on a, it's true, really. If you, if you mistreat somebody, then you want to keep, mis you want to keep doing that to them. It makes you feel better. Sounds like the creed of... Uh Bully, Ken. Oh, it is. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, it's not as right, though it's not as though bullying isn't a isn't a widespread phenomenon among among people. I mean, you know, Ken's he's he's come up with theories like this before, and I remember one sticks with me that you you said once that if someone asks you to do them a I didn't, favor, I didn't say it. I I mentioned it. It, it wasn't. It, I'm, it's not an original Ken Early idea. Oh, of course, of course, of course. Yeah. But you yeah. you 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 presented the the theorem that if you ask. If, if if someone asks you to do them a favor, that you like that person more, yeah, and it it, it sounded completely wrongheaded, but it actually I thought about I ruminated on this for a number of days after the podcast, yeah. and I came to the conclusion that, that that's actually right. It's true because you're you, if you've done someone a favor, then you are thinking, well, that's you know that's obviously that's a that person is a good person. Obviously, he's the kind of person I do favors for, you know. Uh, it's like this is a of course, of course. Of, but of course, of course I did that, that guy. He's a great guy, you know? Um, in this instance, of course, uh, you know, we're going to boo uh, Ramsey. You know, we, we broke his leg and now we're going to boo him. He's a, he's a sniveling little, he's a weasel, you know? This is, this is, this is Ramsey. That that's, uh, thing is, the, the, in, in the case of the favor, was, was something noted by Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin apparently used to use this um, trick a lot. He would ask people to do a favour for He'd him. Say, oh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't mind giving me a lend of that book, would you? And they'd be like, oh, okay. Uh, this is particularly people who he thought didn't like him. And then they'd give him a lend of the book, and then suddenly they're friends. But, it's you know, you'd think that usually, usually people would, in a confused way, think, well, 
obviously, if I want someone to like me, then I should do good things for them. Yeah, particularly but if then, you're somebody in power, as as you're talking about there. If you're, you know, if you're a top man yeah. in in the political game, you would assume that you bestow favors upon others. That's just the way it's always worked. Yeah. I mean, if you if you go around following people around trying to do good things for them, then they just kind of be, start to think of you as a skivvy and, mm. and yeah. someone who like is you know abasing yourself before them and someone who's not worthy of respect. Um, Old the, McDevitt endorses Benjamin Franklin as a top top <laughs> man. <laughs> <laughs> he is a top man. He was a top man. Old. You're absolutely right. It's like actually, so actually treating somebody badly will make you want to will make you hate them, and treating somebody well. Will make you like them. It's kind of a weird thing. It's like smiling makes you happy, and like booing makes you angry. This is a. This is also something which apparently someone has done. Like oh, okay, nah, booing. Is, also, a lot of times, booing just makes you happy. Here, boo there on. Do 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 a boo now. I'm going to move that thing away. Here, do a boo. Come on. Uh, how, how far away do you want me from the microphone? Well, I want to be able to see your mouth when you do it. Boo. <laughs> do it. Do it. Come on. Boo, do a boo. Boo. Okay, you're doing Boo. it. No, Murph looks happy to me. He does not look angry. No, he doesn't. He looks like George Bush. You know George Bush doing the chimp face? That's, and you look a bit like it as well. Do it again. Boo. Yeah, see? Look at the angry chimp face that you make when you boo, right? Well, I might look angry, but I feel great. You feel? Yeah. Yeah, well, I don't yeah but I if you did angry, that for another little while, you start getting angry. And well, you're, making, you're making that chimp face. And... It brings out the, you know, the chimp that's okay, wrestling for... Okay, the cheap on uh, the chimp talk, all right? The chimp that's wrestling for the controls of your brain. I mean, yeah, we, we've we all know this. We know this. Or at least heard... If, you, if, you, if you actually put on the face of that chimp, suddenly the chimp rises to ascendancy within the brain. Um, so this is something that apparently was, was also done by some psychologists where they got people to make two sounds. The first sound being E, like a long E sound. In order to make that sound, you have to kind of almost smile you, like it, it naturally kind of pulls the corners of your mouth no out I'm looking bit. at you you're, sm- you're smiling like the Joker e- yeah yeah it's not That's a, a creepy smile it's not what we call a Duchenne smile where the which is a real smile where the eyes uh, the eyes are also involved you know the eye it's it's just that sort of pulling That's the what it is. Your mouth eyes back are, a little yeah, bit your eyes are just sitting there staring at yeah. me and your e- weird smile is yeah. freaking me out yeah. kind of a George Mendes smile nah he, he knows how to do it he knows <laughs> no, how to make a, a proper smile, smile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but and the other sound was ooh which is the kind of sound that you get in a boo, right? Mm. Uh, which, which, which makes you naturally do this kind of pouty expression. Mm. And then measure the mood of the people. And it turns out that E makes you happy and ooh makes you kind of pissed off. Um, so, you know, you sort of assume that your emotions are driving your expressions, but sometimes you're, it can also work the other way. In the same thing, this is kind of related thing to Ramsey, I think, because he's been abused and broken by Stoke, they're never, like, they're never going to respect him. <laughs> it's always, so I don't know. Maybe we, you need to go around treat people well, and they will. What, I'm, I'm, what, is the, what is the quote again? Uh, trust people, and they will prove themselves worthy of trust. Treat them greatly, and they will be great, or something along those lines. I think that's David Brent. Yeah, it sounds a bit more David Brent than. So we'll uh, we'll move on. Steve Peters. But that's that is, I think, why why Stoke do it. Why why Stoke do that apparently weird behaviour of of abusing Ramsey. But anyway, what else? Louis van Gaal, four wins out of four against Liverpool Football Club. That is some record. Uh, moreover, four shots out of four mm-hmm. going into the back of Liverpool net for Man United against Liverpool in the league this season. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Four shots, four goals. Uh, Seaman Mignolet, apparently, uh, up for a five-year contract. Well, I, I don't know if you saw Jamie Carragher. Uh, in the, I was actually amazed by this. There was there was some interesting stuff. Uh, Schmeichel was there. Um, Schme- Schmeichel, Soonest, and Carragher were, were on the Sky panel. Schmeichel actually took issue with Carragher at one point, where Carragher was, was criticizing Mignolet, and he said, uh, Schmeichel said, well, to be honest, I blame you and Gary for that. And Carragher said, Carragher's like, what? And uh, he said, well, you know, I mean, you, you really did like a, a proper job on him. You know, I mean, remember they analyzed Mignolet yeah. at one point. And it, 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 it was came. Really, it was really good analysis. Albeit, I, I do remember wondering, I think we wondered aloud at the time, 
why hasn't Gary Neville ever done quite the same level of tactical analysis on Joe, Joe Hart's Hart. performances? Who wasn't playing great at that time? Why might that have been? He's probably yeah. he was probably just getting around to the Joe Hart one before <laughs> yeah. he, he ended up going to Valencia. It, it was the it was I think the week that Phil Jagielka hit an absolute screamer into the top quarter from twenty five, like an absolutely pretty goal. And he was like, "Millions nowhere near that." And he's like, "Well, if he was a yard closer, would you <laughs> not be giving out quite so much about him? You know, even though the ball is well past him." Mignolet, that remember he was kind of squatting down. Or yeah. he, he kind of had his head down between his knees and he was peering out of the game from that sort of position. <laughs> his hands his hands to either side, like twitching his fingers, and then his head was down, tucked down between his knees as he looked out of the game. And Neville uh, and Carragher thought that this was bad technique. And, they, and to prove it, they showed Phil Jagielka launching this exit uh, <laughs> on the half volley, in off the bar, you know, last minute. Like destiny written all over this ball. <laughs> right? and, and poor Mignolet there not getting anywhere near it and Schmeichel kind of made the point yeah, to be fair it was a pretty good shot like I'm, you know it's going to actually beat most, most goalkeepers but his, his broader point was you know you, you when you put a player like that under the microscope given how, what a big psychological aspect there is to goalkeeping um, a lot of a lot of goalkeeping is about thinking I am the man this is Schmeichel and uh and when you suddenly start thinking, maybe, maybe I'm not the man, then suddenly your goalkeeping effectiveness is, is massively diminished. Um, but Carragher absolutely went for Mignolet then after. Like, I, I don't, it wasn't part of the same discussion. I don't think it was. But he basically said, five-year contracts, crazy. Like, to me, that smacks of, oh, you are my man. Uh, you know, we gotta, we're going to depend on you. He's got to go. Like, they've got to sign a new goalkeeper. You know what I mean? I thought this was amazing. Like it's really, really harsh. You know, for imagine Carragher's reaction if a pundit. I mean, Carragher rang up. Who is it? We using the. Oh. It's uh, your man off Talksport, Adrian Durham, rang him up uh, to because he got angry listening to him one time talking about what Carragher had been a bottler or something. Or he, Come on he, down to Anfield and we'll see. We'll see then, won't we? Yeah, Carragher had <laughs> had, had bottled like playing for England playing or something, England, or he, he it, wanted yeah. to retire and you're a bottler or whatever. And Carragher got really. But this is Carragher, like on Sky, using the, the main sort of TV platform in the country to protest vehemently against Mignolet getting a contract. <laughs> I thought, wow. That, how would Carragher react if someone was saying that about him? With, no matter how justified it was. But I suppose, you know, on one hand, we were, we were complaining, uh, you know, about Gary Neville not criticising Joe Hart, and here we are complaining about Carragher criticising Yeah, I think what's surprising what about really it thinks. is normally you only hear pundits talk in those terms about a Balotelli type figure a guy who clearly is unpopular in the dressing room no is a, friends is a, yeah. yeah it's just not a very good professional really whereas I don't think people accuse Mignolet of that Carragher seems to be basing it unless he, he of course he would know more about what goes on in the dressing room but he seems to be basing it purely on the fact he just doesn't think he's a good enough goalkeeper doesn't think he's any good exactly mm. um, and, and you know I think Carragher's actually probably right about that I mean I think I think Mignolet to me Makes a lot of mistakes. Never helps when David De Gea is standing at the other end, just batting balls away like a lunatic, though. I mean, De Gea was man of the match again. You know, De Gea has had so many fantastic uh, performances, particularly against Liverpool. But, I mean, he kind of, you know, it's not as though they're the only team he plays well against. I mean, Van Hal talking about maybe we're going to win the title now, we're in contention. And they're only seven points back. Although I think that there's been a kind of a point uh, deflation, like in the sense that, Points now are worth more than they were a few years ago in the Premier League. Seven points doesn't sound like that much, but I think it's worth 14 of your 2008 points. You know what I mean? Like, I think for a top team, getting the seven points or clawing back a seven-point gap is going to be more difficult. Although then again, you know, like we were talking the other day, maybe some of the, some of the teams are going to slow down now. You know, uh, Crystal Palace haven't scored in five games now, for instance. Um Maybe some of these teams are going to start having uh, having more of a problem. But where are we? We, we should mention uh, what Jurgen Klopp was saying. Um, basically, he didn't actually have a lot to say. He didn't really have much to say to analyze the game, other than to say we lost, and that's a disaster. You can't lose. You can't lose these games. They're not about like it doesn't really matter about your performance. It's about whether you win or uh, lose. It's the only thing that matters. I mean, once again, he had left Benteke on the bench, and this is really. Okay, it's obvious that he doesn't think Benteke is going to cut it. You know, maybe, maybe this is a two, a, kind of a two-sided strategy. On the one hand, he's leaving him out of you know, I mean, Arsenal, Manchester United, two of the biggest games of the season. Um, 
maybe in, maybe in training he's saying, okay, this is the kind of player I need you to become. If you want to start playing these games, this is what you got to do. I still think you can do it. You're just not doing it yet. But I don't think really that is happening. I, th I don't think Benteke is ever going to be that type of uh, player. I don't think he's really got the uh, intensity about him to, to, you know, essentially run around and be an active part of the team. He's too often looks like he's daydreaming. You know what I mean? Um, so Not unlike Balotelli. Actually, unlike Balotelli, because Benteke, unlike Balotelli, occasionally scores. I mean, Balotelli is just completely useless. You know, Balotelli, Balotelli really is, you know, something badly broken in his in his idea of Balotelli is just totally useless. Worse than not having a player on the field, in my opinion. Yeah, Benteke, not that bad. No, not n nowhere near that bad. I mean, still the only player that looks likely to score in this Liverpool team. And that's what. That's why. That's why for Klopp to leave him out is a big decision. He, he looks at the rest of the team. Who else is going to score in this team? Well, Firmino got a couple. Firmino against. got a couple against Arsenal, but he hasn't shown himself to be... A, he, he's shown he has the ability to score good goals, but he hasn't shown he can consistently score goals. Lallana never scores. You know, what, it's ridiculous. Lallana shot from 25 yards with his left foot yesterday. I thought... I've, I don't, I've never seen him score... Like, he, he can barely generate the power to score from 12 yards with his good foot. So why is he doing this? You know, Jordan Henderson was shooting from all over the place. You know, I think we all know who he was trying to be and didn't didn't work for him. Um, Milner is never going to score uh, unless it's a penalty, you know. So Benteke, okay, he might. He actually might score. Give him, you know, he gets a chance in the box and he, he has shown the ability to score it. To leave him out when he's your only other only player who can do that shows how unsuitable Klopp thinks he must be uh, for the team. Which which leaves you with some questions about uh, Liverpool and how they're doing their business because he is their most expensive player at the moment. Not ever, but in the current squad. Um, and to fill us in a little bit on that, uh, Brendan Rodgers was appearing on Goals on Sunday. I didn't see it, yeah. I only saw, I saw you ref uh, reference it this morning in your column. Yeah, Brendan Rodgers looking tanned and fit, ready for a new challenge, a project where he can build. Uh, doesn't have to be in England. He was on uh, Goals on Sunday anyway, and he, uh, and uh, I mean, he said a few things. I mean, he talked about Jamie Vardy being that the young boy Vardy. He's only going to get better of the twenty-nine-year-old Jamie Vardy. Uh, but with Rod, uh, the main kind of subject of interest that he was talking about was the why the transfers worked at Liverpool. And if you recall, Rodgers himself said, I've, I've got the final say. Um, I did that interview with Ian Eyre last year at the Web Summit where he said he had the final say. The manager was the one with the final say. Um, the Rodgers yesterday was kind of saying, no, that's not really it. That's not really the way it was. <laughs> Actually, I could see that they could all have been telling the truth. But the final say is not maybe the word they should have used. Because the final say suggests the ultimate authority who's, who's kind of in control, you know? But what if the final say is just like, say, the way Michael D. Higgins has the final say on any legislation that comes out of the door? In other words, he rubber stamps it or signs it, you know? But he actually... <laughs> it's not like he can really do anything no, you, about you, it. You have the answer. It's just the question is being set by someone else. Mm. So, I mean, you have the final say in answer to the question written by someone else that you didn't have any real impact in. To sign off on on the deals. You know, you can, you basically don't have, have the choice. So it was as though he says, Roger said, as a manager, you'll always be the figurehead. In other words, the guy who gets the blame for when things don't work out. But there's a recruitment team in place, guys who'll work very hard. It was a group decision. It was certainly not something where I would have the sole final say. It was difficult because you want a player in, but if the player is not on the list, you'd have to take someone. So basically, they would present him with a list of options, and he would say, hmm, don't really want any of these guys. I want X. And they'd say, well, he's not one of our targets. He's not on our list. We're not going to sign X. What about Y, Z, A, B, C? And Rogers would say, oh, okay, B then. Uh, B, and they would, they would sign B. This is apparently what this is how it was working. That that was always the suspicion, though, wasn't it? That was always a sense that I got. It was something along those lines. I don't think anyone ever fully uh, believed that uh, there was uh, for the entirety of Brendan Rodgers' reign. All you ever heard was transfer committee this, transfer committee that. Mm. So I, what always assumed was something along these lines that there were that that Rodgers did have some sort of a say, but that it wasn't the traditional English model anyway of the manager getting his scouts to look for the best players and then making decisions from there. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, it's essentially, you know, he 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 makes points that that they missed out in Sanchez, uh, who he thought they'd sign. Although it's quite a different account that he um, he gives. I mean, his his account isn't very detailed. Basically, he says the huge blow was that we thought we were getting Alexis Sanchez and that he'd be a like-for-like replacement for Suarez in terms of how he pressed the game, his aggression. We thought he'd be perfect. It'd be a smooth transition. And Ricky Lambert would come in and be an option if we needed something else in the game. Ricky Lambert, like... But we didn't get Alexis Sanchez, and bless Ricky, there was a lot of pressure on him when really that wasn't the plan. Uh, I mean, okay, what made made you think you were were getting Alexis Sanchez? I'd love to know. Because, I mean, Stephen Gerrard talks about, in his book, about... Alexi Sanchez is one of the players that he texted. Oh, Alexi, you fancy playing for the Super Reds of Anfield Road? Uh, got massive respect for you, Stephen, but Arsenal just seem like a more solid kind of a bet right now from a, for a guy of, you know, in my position. So, I mean, as far as Jared was concerned, he was never coming. Like, he politely replied to a couple of texts and said, really flattered that you guys would think of me, but, you know, I think this Arsenal thing is, is going to go ahead. You know, he was never... So where does Rodgers get this idea? You would also assume that there's a plan B. And Lambert clearly wasn't the plan B. Lambert was a separate plan. Plan you know B I mean. was, was Balotelli, it turned out. Yeah, you would have, well, yeah, maybe that, that, that was the case. Not a great plan B. Dele Ali, of course, uh, was supposed to go there. <clears throat> all above board. I spoke to Dele Ali and Carl Robinson, manager of MK Dons, drove him down. It was all above board. Carl told me, I've got a player. I think it's going to be fantastic. I'd love to see him at Liverpool. We watched him. He wanted to come, but unfortunately, never got done between the clubs. Disappointing. So that was the uh, another transfer that they were uh, that was being spoken about over the weekend was Shane Long. Rumors coming out linking Shane Long to with a move to Liverpool. Um, I'd be surprised, to be honest, if that was to if that was to go ahead. It strikes me that Divock Origi is quite a similar type of player to Shane Long. Uh, you know, in terms of a mobile uh, uh, forward who you know is physically uh, strong and doesn't score a lot. It seems to me that he is. <clears throat> they've already kind of got that type of player, and Rigi's also a few years younger. Stephen Hunt says uh, Shane Long is better than any Liverpool striker they've got. Who knows if he's a Liverpool player until he gets the chance, if he's English. Mm. So basically he's saying this idea, oh, Long is not a Liverpool player. You know, people looking at the fact that Shane Long has, you know, only tends to score about five goals a season in the, in the league and thinking that's not good enough, you know, for Liverpool. Um, Stephen Hunt making the point that you don't know, maybe if he was playing for Liverpool... You would see. I think we all know he's never going to become Shane a deadly finisher, but he is probably a better approximation of what Rogers was looking for from Ricky Lambert. Oh yeah. Whoa. Oh. Oh well. Come on. I mean, he's he's definitely. But if you are got the capacity to be option, yeah. much more influential in the yeah. game than Ricky Lambert, and uh, for Jurgen Klopp, if you're looking for a centre forward who's able to press and be a physical presence in the game, and that's this is clearly his problem with Benteke because it's not the goal scoring that's the problem then Long would be better than Benteke at that. Uh, the only problem is uh, there is a lot of pressure, I think, at a club like Liverpool. You miss a couple of, chan- couple of chances fly over the bar um, from scorable positions and suddenly things start to, things start to, the pressure does start to build. Again, the 37-minute FA Cup goal report is forever banished from memory. That was a, a hell of a report in sport. You're back, big fella. Well done. Well done, big guy. Daniel Harris is ready to talk about, I think, what they'd call a morale-boosting win for Manchester United yesterday. Daniel, does it matter to you at all that the performance itself was eh, not great? Um, I guess you're asking me uh, uh, as, a, as, a biased, as a biased supporter yep. rather than as a journalist. And um, it always matters a bit, but in the end, beating Liverpool and coming away from the game knowing that you've won supersedes most of, uh, most of the rest of it. And actually, 
I think United, there were signs in the second half of something approximating to almost a football team. It's, do you think it's simply a question of uh, calming the, the nerves after a tricky period or are there signs that this season is beginning to turn around in a real way for Manchester United? It's impossible to know whether it's turning around because um, in a way this has been the pattern under Van Gaal. Lots of bad performances, then a couple of good ones in big games when they've been required, then back to the same bad performances. And it's that cycle that suggests to you that actually it's not really going to improve too much from here. I do think that He's a bit closer to having the right team. And last season, he got lucky when uh, Van Persie got injured against Swansea and it meant that he could play Herrera and just play one up front. And I think probably this season, he's been fortunate that Schweinsteiger and Carrick haven't been available because uh, although they're probably the two players in the team that can be most trusted to retain possession, uh, you don't need Schneiderlin and one of those two against most of the teams, probably against any of the teams. And Schneiderlin needs a run of games. And Although his passing wasn't as good as it might be, I thought yesterday was probably his best game for United. And that job in front of the back four with some running up and down is something he probably can do on his own. And that enables you to get another attacking player in and probably a bit more rhythm. What was going on with the booing of the substitution of Ander Herrera? Uh, I didn't really notice that. I noticed that Herrera got a lot of cheering for his contribution and because he's quite popular both as a player and as a bloke. But um, I didn't. I didn't actually think anyone was particularly booing the, the substitution, at least at least where I was. Personally, right, I thought that Van Gaal's substitutions yesterday were better than normal, but I wasn't sure he needed to bring Matter on at that point. I would probably just have brought Memphis on. Well, it seemed there was definitely an expression of dissent when Herrera was taken off. Uh, you know, he, he was being, the substitution being booed as he was taken off, and then once he was sitting on the bench, you could hear uh, the supporters singing his name. But I was a little bit puzzled because. Uh, having watched the game, Herrera had done nothing. Um, Herrera has become the poster boy for all that is bad about Van Gaal. And because I guess partly he's a very likeable character. He's quite tough. He competes hard, but is also a nice boy. So he has that balance of kind of pleasantness and snide that people who follow football teams like. And he also passes the ball forward, looks to score goals, looks to create goals, which is anathema to what Van Gaal likes because he doesn't appreciate the risk that he incurs. So, He's achieved this status amongst United supporters and he, he's a good player. He's a nice player. He's, he's a good player. But, I mean, let's be honest, he wouldn't get anywhere near a proper United team in the Ferguson era. So, yeah. so he has this peculiar status in a way. But so that when he gets taken off, it's immediately leapt upon as it's Van Gaal being defensive. But actually, I kind of disagree that he didn't do anything yesterday. He didn't have a great game, but I thought his presence was quite important in being available to help Schneidlin out looking for passes even if there was nothing critical that he did in the final third, which in the end is the main reason that he's there. Do supporters, think, sorry to put across that, I'm just uh, what it's in my head, do supporters really treasure the pleasantness of players as part of the equation you talk about there? I'm thinking of the great United team, maybe one of Ferguson's first great United teams in the mid-1990s, and there were a couple of unpleasant characters there who were hugely popular. Um, there were some unpleasant characters, but I guess it's, there's a difference between the way that people compete and the way that they are on the pitch. So... If you look at Roy Keane, I guess, is the most obvious example. If you ask the other players what Roy Keane is like, more or less all of them will tell you that he's a nice bloke. But the way that he competes is obviously like a lunatic. And um, I think he once said, uh, you, don't, you don't contest football matches in, in, a, in a sound state of mind, something like that. Mm. And it's that kind of thing that's so often missing from Van Gaal's teams, where he's kind of, you're kind of, you thought you were getting this manager who would be high-fiving Robin Van Persie when he scored, he'd be jumping into the middle of a water break rearranging the tactics so that your team won. And what you're actually getting is some bloke who sits there like Susie Dent in Dictionary Corner while the maelstrom's going on around him. And with Herrera, you get that nice mix of, he's someone who you hear him interview, he seems to appreciate the position that he's in, he seems to love football, and you, you kind of do like that in someone, but he also is snide and competitive when he's on the pitch. And so I do think that you have this, at United, you have this Ferguson ethos of, competing viciously but you also have this Matt Busby ethos of uh, being a nice boy and I think that it's quite nice when people mix them you might have someone like Matter who uh, you might think well he'd make a good son-in-law but actually I'd like someone with a bit more devil when they're actually on the pitch and Herrera has that. Is Fellaini then kind of the anti-Herrera I mean he doesn't seem to enjoy the game at all barely seems to have watched it at times Um, but you know put him out there Uh, the supporters probably not going to be singing his name 
But there he is with the uh, the game-breaking intervention. He's the guy who actually makes the difference in the game. Uh, not that he gets any credit for it, but yeah, I wonder what you make of his current status. The world's most expensive lampshade. Um, Van Gaal seems to like Fellaini. And um, he played, I thought he played okay yesterday. And the, the thing with Fellaini, and the, the thing that in a way is different to Herrera is you never forget that Fellaini's playing. He puts himself about, games don't pass him by. And Darren Fletcher was actually a bit like that. Even when he played badly, he wouldn't not be involved in the game. The thing about Fellaini at the moment is that he's been playing in front of the back four, and uh, that is a waste of his uh, inverted commas talents. He needs to be much closer to the opposition goal, and actually Herrera is much better when he has the play in front of him rather than when he's trying to play on the half turn behind the striker, which is where he's been quite a lot recently. The, so the thing with Fellaini is that, in a way, if you're a purist of someone who's grown up watching United, he's a novelty player, and he shouldn't really be playing for United, but... He's also, he's also quite useful. And in a team that doesn't have a lot of muscle, it's not hard to see why Van Gaal keeps picking him, particularly against Liverpool, who has shown weakness at set pieces and uh, weakness in the box. Though it was, much more, it was much more explicable that he played at Liverpool than, when he, than he played and stayed on at Newcastle when another attacking player might have seen United win that game by a couple of goals. Daniel, you mentioned Darren Fletcher there, a player who, as far as I know, used to travelled reasonably regularly with the away fans when he wasn't able to play at Manchester United and used to get in amongst them. A tradition that's now been taken up by Michael Carrick, Marcus Rocco and Phil Jones. We all saw the footage of them celebrating wildly when Wayne Rooney scored yesterday. This must be pretty good PR. It's hard for fans to be critical of players who, you know, travel to games with them and chant their own names. Yeah, it did appear to be uh, something of a coincidence, I guess, that all of a sudden, at a time when Van Gaal's been under pressure, the players were there showing that kind of solidarity. Were they, in, think- the, were they in the Anfield Road and telling everyone to go and see The Revenant? <laughs> um, the, a bloke dressed up as the lion from The Wizard of Oz. Um, but I guess that um, the thing is, is as, as supporters, there's a tendency to think that the players don't really care. But actually... I think it probably means even more to the players than it does to the supporters. I mean, you, you watch a football match, it's in your mind, obviously. I mean, we all think about football more than we would care to admit to ourselves, to our families, um, during the course of when we're not pursuing football. But these guys, um, they're training every week to perform. The people that are performing, if they're not playing, are their mates, who they're having these amazingly intense experiences with day after day after day. So when United win, it probably means even more to them than it does to us, much as there's that kind of self-righteousness of a supporter that that isn't the case. And so I wonder if the United, and I've been to Anfield watching United a lot of times, and um, the atmosphere yesterday was the best United end that I can remember. And I think part of that was probably there was an extra couple of hours. It usually kicks off at lunchtime. It kicked off early afternoon. So there's a couple of extra hours for people to recover and refuel. But I also think that the presence of those United players creates some kind of a buzz that uh, I guess it's not always nice to admit to yourself that someone you don't know, someone who doesn't know you, someone who has nothing to do with you, makes you feel slightly more excited than you were before. But I think the presence of Carrick and Jones and Rocco in that end created some kind of a buzz that actually probably helped the atmosphere, if not, if um, certainly more than hindered it anyhow. Oh yeah, I don't think any of the United supporters have to be too self-effacing or anything about that. I think, I think we'd all like the guys that we cheer every week to be, to be standing beside us going mental when somebody scores a goal. But I'm interested you say, you make that point that you feel actually it does matter more to the players than the supporters because, as you alluded to, there's almost an assumption now that that's not the case. You just hear, well, you know, this, this is, the club is all about the supporters. They're the ones who are going to be there after these players are gone. And if the players do care about the club in any way, it's very much just a transient thing. You don't necessarily agree. Um, no, I think it's not just about caring about the club. It's as part of caring about themselves. In order to be where they are, they've had to give up a lot of things. They've had to put a lot in. So the idea that they don't care about it is, I mean, it's ridiculous. And even if sometimes you'll see a player doesn't chase back in the way that you would like them to, and you get the kind of cliches that, well, if I was playing, I'd run around like a lunatic every week. You wouldn't. If you look at any person in any job, there'll be times when you don't put it in as much as you like. The best example is sometimes, quite often, you watch a fight and the fighter gasses. Now, that guy, if he gasses in that fight, he's got he's risking serious bodily harm. He's risking punches in the face, kicks to the head, whatever it might be, and yet he still hasn't trained as hard as he might have done. And that is, I guess, at some level, a testament to human laziness. But the idea that players don't care as much as supporters is not something that I see watching the game. I see people who sacrifice. I see people who put everything out there. And even if they sometimes take it off, that's just human nature of laziness kicking in as 
there's almost no one who doesn't do that sometimes. And if I think about the greatest players that I've seen, some of them are quite famous for not always putting it in. Ryan Giggs is, a, is a, an obvious example of someone who didn't always like getting tackled, didn't like chasing back and kind of stand there waving his arms. But I don't think anyone would suggest that Ryan Giggs wasn't a committed player and also that Ryan Giggs doesn't love United. People have made that suggestion at times about Wayne Rooney, uh, who maybe was a point, uh, approaching a real crisis point in his career before hauling it back with this uh, recent run, uh, like a goal-scoring run. Uh, five goals already in the league this year, having scored six in all of last year, which is, you know, an unbelievable statistic. Um, you know, what, what, do you get the sense that Rooney is genuinely back or capable of sustaining this this type of form? Or, you know, is, is it simply a question of the ability to whack the ball into the net from eight yards while you're totally unmarked is one of the last things to leave you? <laughs> it's uh, to deal with the first point first about Rooney and his relationship with United and United supporters. It's it's quite complicated because when he tried to leave the first time, what he was also doing was saying a lot of things that as supporters we were saying there was terrible underinvestment in the team. And to that point, you could sort of understand why should he spend his career with United. And there's this there's this idea that players owe fans and clubs something, but. Clubs buy players because they think the players are good. And as soon as they cease being good, they get rid of them. So similarly, it's not unreasonable that a player decides, well, actually, I'm better than this club is at the moment and I'm going to decide to leave. With Rooney, I think it was the fact that he was clearly talking about going to City that was particularly problematic, that got him a visit from various disgruntled supporters. But actually, he is he's still at United and he's someone who they'll only ever... People are still testy with, whereas Ronaldo, who left at the peak of his career and scored loads of goals for Real Madrid, whose name gets sung probably more often than Rooney does, despite the fact that of the two of them, there's only one of them that's still there. And to take Rooney's form issue, I think that it was impossible for him to be as bad as he was at the start of the season. I would have been surprised if he'd continued playing as badly as that. And to talk about the, uh, the finish from eight yards is the last thing that leaves you. When it actually happened, it reminded me quite a lot of um, a game at Swansea at the start of the season when Rooney had more more or less a one-on-one in the last few minutes that would have saved United a point. And um, rather than smash it, as a confident Rooney would have done, he waited and he waited to get as close to the goal as possible to reduce his margin for error, by which time Ashley Williams had glumped across and uh, took it off him. And what you saw with Rooney yesterday was someone with confidence. And in the end, when you're talking about being in front of the goal, the most thing that you, the thing that you need most of all is confidence. And he didn't think about it. He took a step back, he smashed it, and that was the thing to do in that situation. And I think maybe Rooney, even a couple of weeks ago, might have taken a touch or might have thought, well, I might sky this and not put his foot through it in the way that he did. So I think the goal that he scored against Newcastle, the goal from outside the box, probably gave him the confidence that actually... He's not totally finished. And um, in the end, like there was a lot of talk earlier in the season, United should have Marshall up front instead of him. But if you watch Martial play, he doesn't make the runs of a centre-forward. He doesn't quite have the knack of a centre-forward. Brilliant player, though, he's going to be. And at the end of it, if there's a chance that's going to fall in the last closing stages of the game to any player in this United squad, Rooney is the one you want it to fall to, even though you still have to parenthetically think that Teams that win stuff have a better centre forward than Rooney, even at his best. Last quick word, Daniel. Where are you? Where do you stand on Louis Van Gaal today? Uh, I think the same as before. I'd be surprised if he was there next season. I think he's lucky to be there now, and at more or less any other club, he would be gone by now. He's good at executing something in big games because United's performance in them has been too good under him to be some kind of mistake. But I think that this cycle will continue of a few bad performances a few performances with lots of possession, not enough goals, and then a big game where he gets his selection right, the stars align and the result goes in his favour. I don't think United will get very much better under him, particularly if he's not allowed to sign enough players to make his tactics less relevant. And I don't think he'll be there next season. All right, Daniel, brilliant stuff. Thank you. No worries. Bye-bye. A fairly convincing argument by Daniel there. I think that the players actually do care about what they're doing. Maybe they don't care about the long-term health of the institution for which they play for but certainly Mm. while they're with a club they care about what they're doing and they do care about what they win with their teammates not all of them but quite a lot of professional footballers do you would you agree in fact you went quite far there to say they care more than the supporters most fans would say the opposite i would have thought um well they 
they probably do. Uh, in a weird way, I suppose they care more than the supporters. I mean, they care more about what's happening in a given season, maybe, mm. as opposed to caring more about what Manchester United, for example, it will be in a few years. Yeah, I mean, they care about their own careers, I suppose. Uh, the better the team does, usually the better for the players in the squad, although not for all of them. You know, if you're <laughs> sitting there watching the team playing amazingly, it's not necessarily that comfortable an experience. Um, I mean, the, I, I didn't like the whole thing where they were all tweeting about the movie. I thought, come on. like, uh, Can you explain that for us, for people? Well, just all the, Man, all the Man United players, or, or a whole bunch of them were tweeting about The Revenant. And they were all like, last week, they were all like, oh, can't wait to see that Revenant movie. Like, you know, one Matt, uh, Morgan Schneiderlin, Ashley Young, uh, Marcus Rocco. Um, who else? Depay, I think. Memphis, he? yeah. And, uh, Andy Cole, Brian Robson. Where are they? Even yeah, the, yeah. the, old, oh, the old guys, the ambassadors. Yeah, Even yeah. Robbo. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Robbo, no. I mean, I, I, I find that kind of thing undermines the connection between between fans and players. You're like, oh, you're marketing to me now? You're seriously going to market at me? Come on. You're going you're gonna to pretend that you want to see The Revenant? I mean... Well, you're following a professional sports person on Twitter. You're going to expect a certain amount of marketing. Well, that's, you know, that's the kind of... That I find it a little bit annoying. Um, the, the way they were all doing it. That's just because you didn't like the movie, though. I mean, sometimes, say, Shabby Alonso, you know, is like, wow, Fargo, masterpiece. Right, I don't know if he's talking about the first or second series. This is, you know, now I maybe foolishly I thought, well, there's Xabi Alonso telling us that he liked the series mm. Fargo. But now I, I'm I wondering. Think, I think to be honest, if if anytime they're using a prescribed hashtag or the actual movie Twitter account, movie. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, uh, I don't know anyone who would who would do that. Wow, what do you think is behind Jabby Alonso's love of Fargo? Where's the link there? Well, no, that's the no, thing. No. I, I mean, He's not sure now. On, I, right. I naively thought, oh, there's, there's Jabby Alonso, you know, telling us that he thought Fargo was good. Maybe he wants us to watch Fargo. Was Maybe the movie or the TV series? I, I think he made the TV series, yeah. Unless he's only now catching up with the movie, you never know. A lot of people it, going back to the true, movie yeah. now on, yeah. you know? Really? Great, great yeah. movie. Yeah. Um, Just watched it there last week. <laughs> did you? Would you credit that now? Yeah, yeah we'll talk about this. Uh, Perhaps off air. Now I don't know. Maybe So maybe it, uh, as long as the Man United uh, players are keeping it as crude and obvious as they did last week with their, with their advertising. <laughs> this is clearly okay. mad. Yeah, as long yeah. as we can tell the difference between and had an actual uh, attempted human communication between players and their The three supporters. of us should tweet something really bizarre at some stage in the following week and see if our listeners can tell whether we've been paid to do it or not. There are quite a few players who do continue to care about their club after the career ends I should probably it probably is worth pointing out not that people don't know this but I was quite struck last week during the Man United Newcastle game by I'm sure this is a common uh, common enough occurrence but by Rio Ferdinand's constant stream of tweets when he's being employed by BT Sport to analyse the game Yeah, I don't think I'm giving away any trade secrets to say that maybe when analysts are watching matches a lot of analysts have been watching a lot of matches for a lot of years and they mightn't be fully focused on every minute of the action. So I'm sure it's okay yeah. okay to send a tweet. You could argue... Your, your, your deep knowledge of the game fills in yeah. the gaps mm. of the, you know, your deep knowledge of the game, sort of the actual, the, the sport, the sport yeah. fills in the gaps in your knowledge of the game that you basically haven't really watched. But I do find <laughs> it's just a little bit jarring when you're looking at these tweets saying, get in Waza and come on Herrera and these kind of things. And then it gets to halftime and it's this sober, unbiased analysis. <laughs> from Rio Ferdinand and then back to the tweeting in the second half yeah um, well I suppose at least he's probably doing his own tweets right oh yeah I think Rio does his own tweets it seems uh, seems pretty clear yeah yeah look it's it's all I don't know it's all going to hell isn't it Dion Fanning was at Stamford <laughs> Bridge to watch this incredible three-all draw between Chelsea and Everton some game Dion one man who wasn't feeding the love though afterwards is Roberto Martinez who had a, a proper go at the referee he's a very he comes across as a very nice man. He certainly is happy, I think, for that public image to be out there. Is there a case we made that maybe he's not as nice as he likes to let on? Well, I think he could probably do it being even even less nice because, uh, you know, the, the act, the kind of stuff he came out with along with the, the complaints about the referee, some of which were inaccurate. You know, he said Terry was offside, um, you know, when Ivanovic headed the ball on uh, towards Oscar, which which wasn't wasn't true. Um, are correct, uh, but he also, 
you know, he comes out and says, you know, we're not the kind of team that's going to run the clock down. And you're listening to, I was, you know, I was there on Saturday and listening to him saying this. You kind of think, well, that sounds like a criticism of the team from the manager. But actually, he means it as something uh, praiseworthy. Um, and I don't understand if you're going to if you're going to hold to some, you know, uh, impossible kind of Corinthian values. Uh, you know, we don't run the clock down. That's not what we do. Then. You, if you're going to be consistent in that, then you can't be criticizing referees uh, for you know a, a, a mistake, which you could understand. It was you know Terry was offside. The, the problem you know you could understand that they wondered if 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 who had got a flick on towards Terry, um, but it was a mistake. But the greater mistake from Everton's point of view was not closing out the game, and that's just professionalism. It's not cynicism. The cynical act was coming in and blaming the referee for it. Not it's not cynical to be to be running the clock down after ninety seven minutes when you you've got a lead and you've got you've given away a lead once and you've got it again in the in the last minute of the game. Yeah, I mean, Martinez afterwards said diabolical, horrific, shocking. There are dot dot dots between these words. It's not as though he came out with all this in a. In a row, but these are the words that he said. Uh, very hurtful. Sorry, heartbreaking as well. Yeah, heartbreaking, unacceptable, a major error. Nobody deserves that. All you want is for the referees to do their job, and the referee wasn't up to the level today. <sighs> I mean, you know, that's critical enough. I wonder if when he hauls in a player, you know, for a sort of Monday morning bollocking, if it ever gets that harsh, or if his criticism of himself and his own decisions ever approaches that level of invective because it it, it annoys me about Martinez that he um, un- unleashes all this vitriol on the referees and I can understand why he would be annoyed in that situation on Saturday but it happens so often but he never does anything to address the chronic problems that his teams have with conceding goals. Well, that's the thing, and from what you hear about Martinez, he is he is you know harder with with players than uh, than you know his public image would suggest. But it, nothing has been done to to rectify these problems. And as I said, somehow he he thinks it's a badge of honor that these the, these problems exist. Like, I don't know any supporter of it. I'm not even sure that there's that many neutrals who hates who, who have have a big problem with somebody going to a corner flag or somebody running out the running down the clock. In you know, in in the dying seconds of injury of injury time, I I don't <clears throat> as a neutral, I don't ever really remember getting that bothered by. It. I, I I nearly had tears in my eyes watching John Walters doing that for Ireland during the yeah, European. But, well, <laughs> if you're a supporter, there's nothing else you want to see. Like it's it's the most important thing. And Ireland threw away. If you remember, the, was the Austria game they lost when, when they failed to do that. Yeah, it was John, John Walters at the centre of that one as well. Yeah. But he he and, improved. Uh, but obviously supporters don't have any problem with it, but I don't even think as a neutral you're watching it going, this is outrageous, how dare they, uh, this is not what the game is about. You might think it if, you know, you, you, like if you look at what Costa did on Saturday when he was injured off the pitch and uh, he rolled he rolled back onto the, onto the pitch so that the so play would stop and the referee actually told him to get back off, to roll back off the pitch and he acted like this was, uh, you know, you were putting my life in jeopardy by making me roll back off the pitch even though I've just rolled onto it. Uh, now, maybe you could get annoyed with that as a neutral. It was pretty amusing but I don't think anybody has any problem. I don't see it as, as, a, as, a, as a blight on the game that players are running down the clock. Certainly it's not as much of a blight on the game if you're going to get into that kind of debate done criticizing you know talking about referee in in those terms when you could equally you could easily say that about how his team had failed to um, hold on to a lead twice yeah. i mean they were talking afterwards about uh the champions league everton is still talking about the champions league i, I mean roberto martinez um you know, it's talking about how the, the reason why we think we can still get in there is because we, you look at the players we've got, the likes of John Stones, Ross Barkley, Romelu Lukaku. Now, he was kind of making a point about those players are, are, are important players in our team at a young age, 21, 22. But there's no denying that this is a team that has a lot of talent. It's not just young players either. Uh, I mean, you know, they've got a, a lot of veterans in the defence. I mean, Howard maybe is, is a little bit too much of a veteran at this stage. Shagielka, Coleman, Baines, Barry, these are all highly experienced professionals. So it's not as though there's some kind of children's crusade going on at Everton. Um, but the, the mere fact that Martinez, from a position in the bottom half of the t- table, can still be talking about the Champions League shows that his squad actually does have a lot of good players. I wonder how ha- how long... Everton and the, and the supporters of Everton will be content to watch this collection of good players in the bottom half of the table. Well, they, they do have, and that's the thing, they have a, a great collection of players. And 
at this, you know, for the, the first half on, on Saturday was really appalling. Like I saw people complaining about the first half at uh, Anfield yesterday, and I was thinking you, you should have sat through uh, Saturday at Stamford Bridge because it had nothing on it. But the second half, you know, Everton were brilliant, and all those talented players uh, came to the fore. And they should be closer to the Champions League. That's the point. And the reason, one of the reasons they're not is because they keep losing leads. And this was a huge opportunity for them because, you know, they got a, they got a draw at Manchester City <clears throat> on, uh, on Wednesday night. You know, they got a good result against City in, in, the, in the League Cup. Um, they have, their league form hasn't been great. And a win here would have said, right, they are, um, you know, they are a team to be reckoned with within the Champions League uh, mix because, you know, there aren't... Like you, you look at the talent they have. They have a more talented group of players than Liverpool, uh, who you know aren't in the, really in the Champions League contention anymore. But they were mentioned in it. They've arguably got you know as good a good a group of players as as Tottenham do. Um, you know they're certainly a hugely talented squad. And the, this this as you say, like this isn't. He talked again on on Saturday about this young team. Uh, will learn from these mistakes. And you look at the you look at the back five. Three players over thirty. Uh, John Stones, who does make mistakes, but is an, an exceptionally good. John defender. Stones is meant to be a genius. He's meant to be a genius. He probably would. Uh, he probably would be more of a genius if um, Everton did more work on 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 defensive defensive aspects of their game. But you know, Jaggy Elka was at fault uh, for the first goal in a way that you would probably you couldn't blame Martinez for that. But uh, I I think their failure. Um, this failure to kind of make the most out of this this squad, there will be questions asked about 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 the manager. You know, if if the season kind of keeps going in this in this way. Uh, Dion, I was watching Tom Brady lead his Patriots uh, thumping victory in the playoff over the weekend in the playoffs. He's thirty eight years of age. Says he wants to play for ten more years. We should bring him near enough his fiftieth birthday. And I, I got to say, John Terry was sounding a little bit like this after the game yesterday. He says, "I've never been quick." He says, uh, "He's 30, people say he's thirty-five, almost thirty-six. Maybe his legs have gone, but I've never had legs. It's as simple as that. I've never been quick all my career. Everyone gets it in their heads that it's a problem, but it's lazy to suggest that physically. For me, I'm feeling as good as I've ever felt. Does it sound to you like he might be playing into his forties? Uh, <laughs> I think he might want to um, for whatever reason, but he, uh, you know, he, I, I, you know, his, his point is is. Has has some validity, but he is getting if he you know he is getting slower. He is getting uh, more susceptible to kind of just being in the wrong position, getting in a bit you know the the the, uh, the own goal. Wrong was, position. What a goal! What a position to be in at the end, Dion, and what a <laughs> well, yeah, right, yeah, well, heroic uh, <laughs> yeah. JT at the end, of course. I kind of wish I'd been there to to witness that moment. Actually, <laughs> John Terry scoring a. An offside ninety-eight minute back, back heel, heel equaliser. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm afraid you know, my enjoyment of it was was slightly diminished by the fact that it was in the ninety-eight minute, and we're we're on we're on deadline. Of course, uh, yeah. You kind of think this is this isn't, you, yeah. this isn't what we really what we wanted. So I, I kind of glimpsed Terry, you know, launching himself into the crowd, uh, and you know, but I uh, didn't really fully savor it until I saw it a match of the day later. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, you know, Terry. Terry is, is, you know, he has been a great leader for Chelsea, but he has many other things. And one of the other, you know, he doesn't miss um, an opportunity to put forward his case either. And if you're not going to put forward your case when you've uh, when you've scored an equaliser in in you know in, in the 98 minute, then when when are you going to do it? Um, I think there were I think there were big problems for Chelsea on Saturday. I, I, they did they did react a bit better than they would have done under Mourinho, um, you know, when they were two goals down, but. The first half, they were really terrible. I mean, Everton weren't great either, but Chelsea played with with, with no uh, no urgency, no no interest. It was a kind of performance seen so often, you know, this season. And watching it, and you know, when the two goals went in, you're going, "This is very little has changed." Now, the maybe what has changed is their their determination to get back into it. But uh, I still think there are big problems. You know, they're not going to be they're, whether they're not going to be relegated. Probably, and probably not going to get Champions League, even though Hitting was talking about that recently. So maybe they've just lost kind of motivation. But uh, there's a very talented group of players there, and they're not really doing it. Well, Dion, it's funny you, you, I mean, you mentioned relegation. Nobody's really mentioning that word. And we had a conversation that was unfortunately never aired because <laughs> events overtook us when we talked about Mourinho on the day he was sacked. Uh, before, we think we might have spoken about half an hour or an hour before it actually happened. And we were speculating then on the possibility of relegation with Mourinho in charge. Uh, is it not as likely they're going to get relegated as get into the Champions League, which for some reason people are still talking about the Champions League when they're only on 
25 points. They're not winning many games under their new manager, even though they're not losing any. And they're only, what, six points off the relegation zone? Yeah, I, I think there's too many teams, bad teams below them for them to be uh, to be relegated. And I do think... Uh, you know, getting rid of Mourinho has has sort of changed the atmosphere within within the squad enough that they can they would have lost. I think they would have lost that game even with Everton, even against Everton. They would have lost that game under Mourinho. So yeah. uh, um, there, there is there, there they will get enough points not to be relegated. Um, but it's it's not a it's not a huge you know, it's a terrible <laughs> achievement for the for the champions of England for Roman Abramovich's team. That that that's what they're doing, and they're just kind of in January. Seeing out sort of you know seeing out a season where they sort of aspire to mid table, maybe the Champions League things will think things will happen for them there, and that's uh, all they probably can look forward to now. Dion, brilliant stuff. Thanks, Mel. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I think that's fair enough from Dion Ken that the <laughs> the point that well you know John Terry can say I've never had legs, but. Even a slow a player who starts out reasonably slow becomes slower when they're 36, 37. It's not just a question of straight line speed either. It's a question. It's it's a, the whole issue of agility and flexibility. I mean, the fact is, the older you get, the stiffer um, you become. The less able to do the kind of acrobatics that. I mean, even you know, John Terry's uh, w- w- has never been a quick central defender, but he hasn't lacked athleticism. I no, think you know he's all. always been able to. He's been you know he used to. I mean, you can you can see by the difference in the number of goals that he scores, the decline in his athleticism. You know, he used to be a player who would dom- ten years ago he would dominate um, at attacking quarters. You know, he would score. He scored tons of goals, and now it's like I mean, we were talking to him after a game in which he scored, but I mean, I've never seen a less characteristic goal <laughs> from John Terry than the back heel uh, that you know equalizer the other day. But you know, he. Um, uh, I think that 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 kind of shows pretty clearly that he's not the player that he was. I mean, obviously he's gonna he's he's gonna put himself forward in the best possible light, and uh, you know who could have a problem with that? All right, we've been prattling along here long enough, and we've got another show to work on. We'll be talking about the tennis match fixing scandal. <laughs> I'm just laughing. It's today's corruption story. Yeah. Uh, is so good, it? it's quite it's quite an interesting one. I really like this one. I know, I know some people have been saying. I say I really like this one in terms of juicy detail. This is one of the best corruption scandals we've had in a yeah, I probably, in a week. I probably prefer I probably prefer people weren't throwing matches and the authorities weren't turning a blind eye but mm. hey it gives us something to talk about on Monday so we'll chat about that in uh, in a little bit very blasé attitude towards it all Owen. thanks very much for listening to the show thanks very much for your contributions Kieran and Ken thank you Owen thank, thank you Ken you, thank you, and just remember lads we are all born ignorant but one must work hard to remain stupid that's the second time it's gone off Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.